Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're interviewing Sally Adams, who I actually met about two months ago, I think, on a Facebook website. She was advertising a podcast and blog that she has called Sally Pal, and I was interested to being on it, and she interviewed me about a month ago, which was very exciting because I've never been on the other side of the podcast process. Uh, and after the interview, I called up Stacy and I said, this woman's amazing. Let's get her on our podcast. So Sally, thank you so much for coming to join us this week. I'm so uh, excited. I love you guys. <laughs> a little background is Sally is, she was, I can't say born and raised, but she pretty much grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. She was there for a number of years as a drama teacher, I believed, and did everything you can imagine in the arts all over Tulsa. She started a podcast and blog, I believe in 2011, is what I found well, the, on... The blog I started in 2011, the podcast I started uh, last year. Ah, okay. I was wondering about that because I was like, podcasts are still so new. Uh, so she has her own uh, podcast and blog called Sally Powell, which is the one that I was on. And looking at her website, there were so many things that I loved about it, but there's a few quotes that actually really jumped out at me that I want to start with. One of them is... In addition to imagination, the most important tool in the world of performing arts is collaboration. Even solo artists must, must eventually collaborate with an audience in a live performance. And that speaks so much to me because Sally and I talked a lot about this on when I was with her on her podcast. But everything we do is collaboration in the arts. And everybody is just as important as anybody else. And that's what Stacey and I continually try to talk about on this podcast. You know, that it doesn't matter if you're on props running crew or you're singing soprano in, in the opera, you need every single one of those positions in order to make, make art, which is what we do. Uh, which kind of led to the next quote that I loved from her blog that says, artistic expression is a messy business. It calls for confidence and humility, perseverance and surrender, chaos and tranquility, which I think probably sums up absolutely everything that we do. <laughs> Yes, chaos so, is pretty much it. Somehow organized. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But even the confidence thing, like, you're not going to make it in this industry if you don't have any confidence in yourself. But at the same time, you can't have too much confidence because then nobody wants to, or, you know, you, you have to have some humility or right. nobody wants to work with you. So, Sally, how did you get into performing arts? And how did you become, like, kind of one of the biggest cheerleaders of, of new works and performing arts? Oh my gosh. Um, well, it started actually, I'm sure of it, back when we lived in Midland, Texas, before we moved to Tulsa. I was quite young, but I was involved in a children's program there at the, they called it the Pickwick Players in Midland, Texas. Interestingly enough, the um, playwright there is the same guy who write, who wrote Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which starred Cher on Broadway, Cher's first starring role on Broadway. But you before then... You did a from that in high school. <laughs> really? Oh my gosh. But he, uh, now I can't think of his name. It's just flown out of my head. How embarrassing. I want to interview him, too. That's terrible. Okay, we'll think <laughs> of it. You told him back. That's nice. No, no, I'm fine. I remember everything. But um, <laughs> I'll think of it. 
halfway through this interview. Anyway, he actually introduced me and my sister as well to this idea that you could tell stories on a stage using pretend things and basically playing a big game of pretend. And then at the same time, uh, I was singing in choir. And when we moved from Midland, we moved to Houston, Texas, where I ended up singing in a choir with Alan Pote, who's one of the biggest music, um, like uh, choral music publishers in, in or writers in uh, church music. But he always put on shows with the kids. So I got to do plays with him and we did original stuff. I mean, it's just amazing to me the opportunities I had as a kid that didn't occur to me as unusual because I was a kid, you know. Right. They were just, just normal to you because that's what you had. This is what you do. And then my best friend next door, Mary Kay, and I used to make up plays and invite the local people in the neighborhood to come watch. And they did, like, you know, pay a nickel and watch us dance around and make something up. But... <laughs> so ridiculous the things you do as a kid and you have no compunction but um but that's probably where this all started and when I started teaching I saw that same joy in kids of creating and in my own children I thought this is this is really good let's encourage this so instead of you know they had their fair share of camps and lessons and things but I always wanted to make time for them to play have lots of free play because that's when they started telling stories. That's that's just what it is. It's it's how we hold our culture together. And that evolved for me as a teacher because you're constantly asked to explain what you do, you know, justify why we need arts in school. That's easy. You know, it's the most important thing we do as a culture. Justified. Right. <laughs> if only yeah. everybody agreed with that. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can tell you the thing is people get so excited about football and there are a lot of artists who want to get angry about the fact that sports is so important. But sports is just another form of storytelling. They're improvisationally telling a story of, of, a, of a conflict. And if we can start seeing it in that way, children who are given the freedom to tell stories, whether it's sports or arts or whatever, um, those children actually have better brain development. And there's, I've got an article in my blog about that, and there's plenty of research that backs that up. But children who are allowed to tell stories themselves, whether with a group or solo, do much better in school, ultimately. I think I and did read... <laughs> on your blog, you, you had a, a comment that stuck to me that said, uh, we or the schools educate the imagination out of children, which... I think Stacey and I would both agree with there's yes. so many classes and stuff where, you know, it's, it's all either black or white and there's kind of no in between. What, is that something that you kind of realized or learned early on, or is that something that came later? And then what did you do as an educator to counteract that in the classroom? That's a good question. I actually stole that quote from Sir Ken Robinson, who wrote the book, The Element. And he is a fascinating guy. He has one of the most uh, watched TED Talks online. And he's, uh, if you get a chance to watch it, he's got two or three out there, but they're all excellent. But his first one is probably the most famous. And he is an educator. And he says, what education has done is created a system that educates imagination out of children, because they all start with huge imagination. And we yeah. gradually, you know, beat that out of them, you know, however we do by forcing people into a regimented way of learning. Um, mm -hmm. When I 
my last job was at Holland Hall School in Tulsa, and I have so much pride in that program because of how it's operated. Um, the people who, who manage that program, especially in the arts, are just top-notch. And what I asked for when I came in, part of my contract request was that I not be required to, to have grades. I would do um, assessments, but I was unwilling to do the A through F grading system. And I took a chance that they might say yes, and they did. Now, a lot of arts teachers don't recognize that that's an opportunity. And I wouldn't say the same for music teachers um, necessarily because there's a different rigor involved in that in technique. But I think for teachers who are teaching that sort of creativity style of class, um, not that I am against rigor of technique because I'm totally all about rigor in the program, mm -hmm. but... I think the assessment of the arts is such a different animal. And to start telling kids you're talented and you're not, which is what assessments can sometimes turn into or be misinterpreted, then what you've done is you've taken away that opportunity for them to discover who they are through the arts. And that's one of those things where we learn to assess each other. We talked about methods of critique. We talked about um, developing stories and what makes a good story. I mean, all of the things we got to talk about led to amazing class discussions, amazing creativity. And these kids wanted to do everything. They wanted to work on costumes. They wanted to work backstage. They wanted to, I mean, I had just as much fun working with my tech crew as I had working with the actors. Um, once you give an eighth grader a chance to climb that scaffolding and, you know, oh, yeah, wear a pair fun. of rope, right? <laughs> it's like, they don't want to do anything else. Yeah. So um, I think that led to that sort of um, ownership of their art that meant they had to assess their work and stop worrying about someone outside, an adult saying, you're talented or you can do this or whatever. They had to decide for themselves, is this what I want? And, and really, there's so much more agency in that, I think. And the school is very supportive of me doing that. I feel like two things keep coming to my mind one is when I was younger I wanted to be a writer and I loved writing and I used to write all the time and my sister and I did all like AP classes through school and I was constantly getting marked off in my writing because the grammar wasn't perfect or I didn't use the right punctuation or you know I wasn't fitting in with the style that the teacher wanted and I realize now looking back that somewhere in high school I just kind of stopped writing because every time I tried writing I was just marked down on grades for it because they wanted a very specific style and you're right it took all the creativity out of it and all the fun out of it and then I stopped doing it because I had somebody else judging me not for the content but for you know all of the the specifics of it and not what I was actually writing about so the fact that you're letting these students not be graded especially for students who like us we always wanted to get A's and if you're trying to do an art and you're getting a B and you you know there's no way to tell why you're getting a B versus an A. It's not like math where two plus two has to equal four. Right. Then you lose all your desire to do that art anymore. So yeah, I mean, you, that can happen enough times and you just give up. And I know I've had it over time when in my rehearsals, cause I would do shows with 80 to a hundred people. So I turned into oh, more man. of a field march. Yeah. It's a lot, 50 foot proscenium. So it's, you know, it's, it's a lot. And especially younger kids, it's hard to get them to pull them out enough to get their message to the back of the 1200 seat theater or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what happened is a couple of times I, I created leadership within the group so that I had older students 
know, helping with younger students and forming families and they would get together and I would distribute, I would type up all my notes and I would distribute them ahead of time to the leaders. And I would say, you get with your family group and you talk about these notes and what, which ones apply to your group, you decide, and then you figure out how you're going to solve that for this rehearsal. And that's how we began every rehearsal. So you're not doing notes at the end of rehearsal. Everybody's tired and wants to go home and they're not listening or writing down or anything. You get started at the beginning of rehearsal, then you apply those notes and they've actually started using the information. But I had a couple of parents and different people come in and actually my parents were very supportive, so I don't make it sound like they weren't. But occasionally you'll have other adults come into the process who are unfamiliar with how that works. And that's where the messy business part comes in. I would have them come in and say, well, this is just a big scrum fest. You know, <laughs> I'd have kids in groups and talking and they were all loud and they were going over the notes. But I was looking and seeing there was some real work happening and it was yeah. very exciting to me. And to explain that to them and say, this is not a factory or a museum. This is, this is a laboratory. And, and, you know, it took a while, but over the course of 10 years, people really started to understand because the end product ended up being so good because it stopped being my show and it became their show. It had to be, it had to be collaborative because I can't get up there on stage and act their parts. Definitely not for a hundred right. of them. And at yeah. that time, you're also creating managers and leaders and, you know, those people might become oh. stage managers because they're taking the initiative to, to lead a group of people, which, you know, I feel most, you don't get in most high schools, especially because you're in high school. So everybody, you know, you don't, you're not trained, at least in our high school. Well, we are a little bit special, not always <laughs> trained to become performers or, or stage managers. You know, the focus is almost always on performers. So the fact that you gave them that opportunity is amazing. Did you have... The, the breakdown, did you have about as many people coming in wanting to do backstage or did they all come in wanting to be performers and then kind of realize that they wanted to do backstage or did you notice a shift as it went on? Interesting. Um, probably not a huge shift. But what I would do is I would have, uh, you know, the younger kids who had never done shows before. If I had a big enough show, I would just say, sign up, you're in, you know, just because it's a little early to start auditioning when you're in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Um, mm -hmm. Sixth is kind of when we started to introduce this idea and on up. Of course, you know, when we get into the high school, then it, it becomes more competitive. But then the kids who would uh, sign up to be in the show would want their friends to be in it, who were too nervous to be in the show. And they say, well, you can be part of the show. And I had a separate sign-up sheet for people who wanted to get backstage. And even if they didn't want to get backstage, like you two, I, they would ultimately have a friend drag them backstage. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> without their knowledge, you know. So, but I just chased them down and said, let's do this. And we would have separate special meetings with the technicians. We'd have a pizza day where we'd go and help work on the set. And there was always something about being a technician that was slightly more special in some ways because the performers got applause. They got tons of attention. They got flowers, all of that. So I wanted to make sure that my technicians understood that they were the professionals and it was their mm -hmm. job to make sure the show happened the way it was supposed to happen. And so they got to, you know, total respect, you know, of course, backstage you always have those moments, but my, my number one law backstage is do not talk to the stage manager <laughs> during production. <laughs> I had one stage manager. <laughs> right. I had this one stage manager, such a great kid, but when he started, he was a total doofus. His name was Chris. Sorry, Chris. You're adorable and wonderful now, but you were. And um, <laughs> interrupt 
manager and, you know, constantly distracting people. And so I made him the stage manager. Well, the show we did had 300 or more cues in it for a kid. That's, that's, a, that's a lot even now. Some of the shows I do you know, don't have that many. Absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. And I had two great technicians working with me at the time, Gary and, and uh, Jody, who the two of them made sure that the kids felt confident. And Chris and I worked and he worked with Jody and Gary and he got to the place where he felt like he could do it, but it was very stressful. And it's, it's true of all my stage managers. And then he loved it so much when it was all said and done and realized that what he'd done was hard and that hard, not just for a kid, but for anybody. And he went on to become one of the main stage managers as he grew into it. And I don't know what he did in college, but I'm hoping that somehow it was a leadership role, but I know that it started when he realized that he had responsibility and he had to shift gears from being the distraction to being, um, you know, someone to keep other people from being distracted. That's amazing. It yes, was so cool. Did you, did you see that ever helping them in the rest of their schooling? Cause we had, we had two stage managers that were before Stacy and I in high school who were uh, Nick and John who were the stage managers. And then when they graduated, my sister and I and uh, two friends stepped up. But was it John's mom or Nick's mom said that like the only reason that they were still in high school and doing so well in high school is because you have to keep, you have to be in school a certain number of days. You, you know, if you miss too many classes, you technically can't do the after school programs. Um, you have to keep your grade point average up. And that was the only thing doing these shows that kept them in school. Did you ever find that happening? That, you know, the arts is what kept people going. That's interesting that you asked that because I found that I, um, well, there are two stories that go with that. I found that in my own school, that was always the case. The kids who weren't doing as well in other classes, because at a certain level, there's organization that has to happen. And a lot of disorganized kids are drawn to the arts. I don't know why. Um, <laughs> but they would get in there and learn about integrity and, um, you know, the work ethic that was required and realize that it wasn't just about standing up and being funny, that you actually had to memorize some lines and, you know, help other people out. And it was, it, it, you started to see uh, kids who actually started to become more engaged in school as a rule. And that, was very exciting to see. And I would have their counselors come to me and say, boy, their grades have gone up during the show. Nobody understands how this is happening. Yeah, yeah that, you know? That's usually when our grades drop some because we're in tech week. <laughs> There's no time for uh, other uh, things. You know, I gotta say, I really, that's another battle I had to fight, you know, just like let's ease up on, on tests and whatnot during tech week. And eventually that, that started to happen. But um, for my own children, I have three kids who are very involved in theater and I have three kids, period. So they were all involved in theater. And they, <laughs> and the three of them are, are you know, I would like to say they're very successful in life because they are. I mean, I don't know that I had anything to do with it. Well, I had something to do with it. But <laughs> yeah, I, I did raise I them. <laughs> yeah, I, did. I gave birth to them. They had a, a drama teacher who was a friend of mine, is a friend of mine, who really pushed for that integrity and that if you don't know how to do it, then figure it out, ask the right people, you know, because you can do this. And then when my son wanted to produce his own original play, he was a junior in high school. And so he got a stage for the summer. He raised the money on Kickstarter. He figured it out. This is the one who just 
got this big award and he's graduating college now. And he, um, he learned so much because he had no idea how much would be involved. And I helped, but I said, you have to ask me, I'm not going to step in and fix it or rescue you. If you see that something's not getting done you and you don't know how to do it, then you have to ask me or someone else, but don't just stand around and wait for somebody to solve it for you because you are the producer and this is your play. And I'm telling you that experience changed him profoundly forever. And he is so, he's so mature as a person. And so, um, you know, he's naturally loving, but now he's also, he'll kick your butt if, if you need it, <laughs> you know, there's a good chance to have though. You have to be supportive, but you also have to be the one in charge, making decisions, making sure people stay on time, on budget, everything like that. But you have to be supportive. Otherwise no one wants to work with you. Oh yeah. 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 My daughter had a show she wrote that she directed as well it was one of the first ones she did, and she was invited to do it at the Equality Center um, in Tulsa, which is a, a really great facility. And they, um, she had one actor who kept not showing up to rehearsals or not showing up prepared, and she mm. basically kicked him out. And he, he really begged her to get back in, and she didn't have a good replacement. So he got back in the show, and and she just was not. She she just didn't she didn't show him any mercy. <laughs> It's like you're in this or you're not, and do not let down your fellow actors. Yeah, because on stage you forget a line that doesn't just screw you; that screws everybody. Your I, your other actors don't know what they're supposed to say next. Your stage manager is not sure where you are in the script. Yeah, it oh, doesn't. It's not just you. Worst? Yeah, it's it's the worst when you're on book and and your cast is just totally out to lunch, and you're like, I have no idea where you are. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, like you go, sure. Why not? <laughs> yeah. It and doesn't you happen too there. much in opera because you have a maestro conducting. But I know the last few times I did like straight shows, all of a sudden you're like, okay, we're jumping four pages. Okay, moving <laughs> forward. That, we yeah, missed that, that whole scene. Yeah, for the for the stage manager to know the show inside and out. There's there's just otherwise you do sometimes get left behind. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. There's. All the, all the time when I was doing straight shows because it's it's so much easier for actors to jump than it is for musicians to jump because if a singer misses their cue the the orchestra doesn't jump with you they just keep playing and the singer has to catch up so you know yeah it's yeah. it's so different so you you yeah. keep talking about your kids doing new works and we talked a little bit about this I think at the beginning of the podcast about how you started in new works I'm just so interested by that because that's kind of what your whole um, blog and podcast has been is keeping new works alive and original works alive. What is your favorite thing about that? Why are you so drawn to what I call non-traditional works or a new piece? Is it because it's brand new? Is it because it's modern? Cause you can relate to it. What are all the above? Oh uh, yeah. It's probably a little of everything. Well, you had the experience with the wreck of yes. creating something. Yeah. That there's that feeling of being together in the trenches on something. Yeah. That, yeah. You don't get necessarily with something that's already existed because you have a template You can say, Oh, well, I know how to do bye bye birdie. You do this and this happens and they've already worked out the details of when they need to do the scene changes and how much time we need to change costumes and all of that. Because right. in a new work, that is an important part of it. Yeah. Timing. No. Like, we just don't have enough time for you to figure this out. It needs to already be figured out. 
Right, exactly. So that's part of it is the evolution of how and coming up with clever solutions, which inevitably happen. You'd like, I don't know how we're going to get this guy from this scene to that scene and change his jacket and make it make sense. And then somebody comes up with a brilliant solution and you can change it in the moment, which you can't do with a published work. Um, the other thing mm -hmm. is there's this sort of buy-in, I think, that happens with a new work when it's working, that people get very excited. And when it's not working, then you it's all hands on deck to solve the problem. You know, it's not like, well, we, we're stuck with this crappy script, so, you know, you just have to make it work the best we can. Yeah. You, you can. You can actually, you don't have to say that with a New York, say, well, let's just scrap this scene. It's not working. It doesn't push the plot forward. Um, you know, we don't have time for it. And that's what you do. So do you work a lot with new playwrights? I do. I'm, I'm lucky, 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 lucky that I have two new playwrights in my family. So I've worked with their shows a lot, but also other um, types of artists, uh, including dancers and and not necessarily that I do a lot of producing anymore because I'm we've moved to Virginia and I'm doing a lot more with my podcast, but certainly reaching out and saying, um, keep doing this. It is possible to build a community of people creating new work. And I think when we continue to do, I think we're running into this on Broadway right now. I've read enough articles about it recently to say when we keep, it's kind of the, I don't know, people call it the Disneyfication of Broadway, but I don't think it's that. I think it's more about the monetization of it, which I know is important, but people stop taking risks when they have so much money at stake that they worry about losing the money. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing about creating these, you know, these, um, like you all did with Faust or have are doing with Faust, creating these optical illusions, essentially, that take time and money and collaboration. That's the kind of thing you don't always have the money to do. But you can be creative on a very small scale and you can be creative in ways that save money. And that's what's missing right now is we're not really encouraging that, I don't think. So that's that's me. I'm a little tiny voice out there saying, keep going. Keep doing. <laughs> what I find interesting is it's very similar to what you're saying. But in opera, it's a lot of the smaller companies, the level four, or level five companies or the new startups that are doing all the new work and experimental work or reimagining work. There was a show last year or two years ago. It was called La Femme Bohème, but it was Bohème with an all-female cast. But it's the small companies that are doing it, and those, to me, are the most exciting pieces. And I think it's because they're not afraid of losing $2 million on a oh, show they because they don't have, have that million. much money. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. right, and that's true. It's the bigger companies that are having a harder time doing the bigger, different shows. And I, I think Portland and Chicago can agree with me on, from what I've heard about this production of Faust, the new audience members who have seen it who don't know Faust have loved it because it's new and different. But traditional audience members are having a hard time with it because it's not the Faust that they know. And so it's a huge risk that Portland and Chicago took to do this because they did put millions and millions of dollars into this production, which is stunning and gorgeous. Um, but they're also, you know, they were willing to take that risk to lose that money and to not have the audience because they believed in it so much. And it takes a real special artistic and general director to make that happen. 
because they saw beyond the, the dollar signs and they saw the art form of it and not just how much money can we make or lose on this production. That but, just makes my heart so happy. Yeah. <laughs> it makes mine too, which is why I really wanted to do this show because it's just amazing to, to find a big company that's willing to do that. And I think Philadelphia is doing the same thing. Omaha is trying to do the same thing and it's, it's starting to get out there. But I think it's because people like you and so many of the newer generation are trying so much to push new works well, we and experimental have to, works. You know, we have to. You, you look at, for instance, let's take the music industry. I mean, the, the Rolling Stones, after a while, have got to have gotten tired of singing I Can't Get No Satisfaction, you know. But, right. but once you get to a certain level, that's what the, your audience demands. And so, mm-hmm. you know, but of course, they're being rediscovered. But you notice when... Uh, some of these co- bigger companies have these little offshoot theaters. Like we have a big uh, company in Tulsa called Theater Tulsa. It's the largest uh, continuously operating community theater in the country, I think, or at least on this side of the Mississippi. And one of the things that they've done is they've created this sort of Theater Tulsa After Dark, or they have another name for it. But it's mm-hmm. that they do small, experimental, unusual new shows, and it's it's expanding at a much faster rate than than their old chestnuts series. And so I think we're going to find at some point that there's going to be a transition and they'll start doing a lot more of the newer work like next to normal. And I mean, not that that's so new, but it's new enough. It's much newer than say, you know, Charlie's aunt or something. (laughs) That might've been the last drama I called actually was Charlie's aunt. I did that in grad school. Very, Doesn't very, everybody do that once in their life? I, I don't think, <laughs> I, think I've I had done like it. <laughs> it's, well, you've, you've done importance of being earnest, I'm sure. Uh, I've seen it a couple times, but I don't remember if I've. I don't think I've actually done it. Yeah, How it's very you? similar to to that one. I think I had a total of thirty cues in the whole three hour show. It was uh, I got I caught up on all my homework during that time because <laughs> it was like working in a bookstore that nobody goes to. <laughs> It's wonderful for performers, but it's just like a stationary set and it's a, a comedy and, you know, so that's people coming in and out of windows and doors. And for a stage manager, it's just like nothing oh. goes on. <laughs> oh, I so get that. I so get that. And that's the thing. I mean, you've got it at some level. While it's fun if you've never seen the play, I think, and there are certain plays like Christmas Carol, whatever, that people make part of their holiday tradition. Right. There is some sort of excitement for the audience as well in seeing um, an older play done in a brand new way that nobody ever thought of or a brand new play uh, or a brand new dance or a brand new opera. You know, you name it. I think mm-hmm. that's exciting for an audience to be part of, you know, to be the first audience to see something. Right. Because they're experiencing, they're kind of experiencing it new with you in the moment, which is kind of what the wreck was for me. You know, every audience and you hear this with performers, every audience responds differently. So you can have a really good audience or a bad audience, however we want to call it. But for new productions, especially, you kind of get to experience that new play with the audience. And we, as for the rec, you know, we, we did a run before we opened that um, festival people came to and we actually made quite a few changes after that run because of the audience response that we got or talk back that we had afterwards where they're like well this piece worked or this piece didn't work or we didn't understand this transition and like you said with with works that are already created you can't do that you can't go in and change anything you're just right. stuck with it 
you got to write letters and letters and letters to the publisher to get permission to do to even cut a thing or two, which they don't really allow anymore. You know, I've, I've heard of examples of students going to competitions where they're taking cuttings from shows and they've been called on it by the publisher saying, yeah, you can't do that. You know, and I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's yeah. kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's good reason. Like my daughter's written a piece that's now sort of making the circuit. She's not even published yet. I mean, she's published online, but she's, this piece is making the circuit of college theater because a couple of people have taken things from her show to, um, whatever the, the Kennedy center college theater festival things have been mm-hmm. and they get picked up there and people are like, I love that monologue. Can I get it? And they, you know, send her an email or a text or whatever. And she's like, sure, whatever, do whatever you want. And that I think is happening more and more because publishing companies have kind of put some playwrights off limits for students. And, you know, well, some houses are just very, or playwrights or whatever, are very, very strict. And then others are, especially the newer ones I find, are a lot more open. Uh, Chris Gilbert at Palace Verde's Performing Arts, they're doing a show, Three Musketeers, next season. And it's a new playwright. I mean, it's an old show, but it's a new playwright doing it. And they're going to be the second or third people to produce it. But he just called the playwright and actually talked to her and said, hey, we want to do this, but, you know, our space is smaller. We might need to make some changes. And she was all for it and excited. But if you go to, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein Estate and want to do anything, their estate's like, nope, can't do that. This is what was written. This is what absolutely stays. Right, right. I totally see that. And I agree with you because we've had the same experience doing new plays by newer uh, art. And even artists that aren't so new because we've gotten back to Richard Dresser. And he's, uh, you know, written so many things and been very, very open. And uh, my son studies with Teresa Rebecca, and she's the same way. And so, you know, there are some people out there who are very open to having their work developed still, um, and especially by students, because, you know, and I think that really is part of the collaborative process. I'm not for going in, and I like artists, the integrity of the work and all of that. I'm all about that, and I make my students memorize the lines verbatim before they start to own them. But... Um, that being said, if if you can find that artist who's willing to work with you, that's actually pretty exciting because, you know, like you were saying about the wreck, it was it was about Omaha. You know, if you took that exact show somewhere else and weren't allowed to change anything, it wouldn't have the same resonance, I bet. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And that's why our director was like, we can't really take it on the road because it is so Omaha based. Because that's where we created it, and that's where everything came from. So it would be different to a different audience if we took it somewhere else. But, you know, it's, I mean, I, there are both sides to the coin, because you don't want to be people be stealing anybody's work. I mean, that sucks, too, you know. But, um, but definitely, in a collaborative art form, I think you always have to be... Once something passes in the public domain, especially, then it's kind of fun to see it make a, make a comeback and see some of the same themes that are going on in say the news in mm-hmm. a play written a hundred years ago. Okay. Or even 400 years ago for that matter. Right. Yeah. That's why I love Shakespeare when it's redone to modern times, because it's something that's written so long ago. And you're like, how does this still work in today's society? Well, it yeah. does usually. Yeah. But it what does. About that, that Julius Caesar with the, with the Trump alike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The one at the public. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just amazing. Makes I'm you sorry. wonder. I- 
that. Yeah, I was out of town for that one, but um, I had a number of friends who saw it, and it was, you know, they loved it. So <laughs> it's very exciting. <laughs> right. But yeah, so, I mean, there's, you know, there's a need for that. Yeah. So I'm curious about how did you get started with your blog, and then how did it turn into blog and podcast? What inspired you seven and a half years ago to start writing about uh, new theaters? Or did it come kind of off of teaching and you just wanted it to become a blog and then it evolved? Well, I think I was in the, I was really in the catbird seat in the, when I moved to Holland Hall School and I talk about them a lot because they're very progressive and supportive of their teachers, which is awesome. And I noticed that what was happening is when we would go to conferences or talk with teachers from other schools, there was this feeling that they didn't have the support that they needed to do the things that they knew would help their students in the classroom in the arts specifically because the research was fairly new and so mm-hmm. arts were getting cut at the time in schools mm-hmm. all over the country Still right cut. yeah and and somebody said well you know because i've written a few papers for these things and somebody said well well you should just write if you're going to write why not just write a blog so i just started writing a blog about Uh, You know, I started out by writing about some of these studies and the value of the arts, both in education and in life and teaching life skills and that sort of thing. And it evolved from there because I was an arts teacher at the time. Um, I've been an arts teacher almost my entire career. I have also taught English and French and whatever else, say health, you know, wherever else I can stick you, especially in private school. Um, (laughs) And we need somebody to come and teach women's weightlifting. Sally, you're free at six o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you got nothing else going on. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> but the thing that I noticed was as that evolved, I started to see my own kids developing as writers and then more specifically as playwrights because they loved the immediate satisfaction that you get, the gratification of seeing your words spoken on stage in front of an audience. And that mm-hmm. is hard to match. Yeah, that and so I be kind st- of surreal, something that's just been in your head for months or years and the way you pictured it and then to see somebody else do it and be like whoa that's not what I pictured maybe exactly but this is so cool oh yeah it totally is um you know but I mentioned this VSA which is a very special artist um awards that are given to people who write plays that involved a character with a disability and my daughter wrote about her friend well not specifically about her friend but about a friendship between a deaf girl and a hearing boy and um my daughter's friend was deaf and she used that as her template to to create this story and the how the signer got sort of in the middle of the uh, relationship as well and or the interpreter sorry um and then uh she saw that play performed on the kennedy center stage with professional actors and a professional director and professional and costumes and the whole nine yards and it transformed her and she after that just went into high gear on playwriting and she'd written plays for the local library contest or whatever and and always done fairly well but this was different and uh, yeah, and then my son right exactly it's so different and my son said two years later he's like well i'm gonna try that too and she encouraged him they're very close and so he won <laughs> and nobody saw that coming and in fact, the <laughs> This doesn't happen. You don't have, we've never had siblings win this award. And uh, certainly we've never even had two people from the same state. 
And so that was pretty exciting. And we went back to DC and watched his stuff performed. And it, it, that sort of honoring the work of a young person, and it doesn't have to be a young person. And when I say young, maybe young in the art could be someone in their Mm -hmm. sixth who's picked up the pen, but honoring that in that way, it opens up a world. And I, I think watching that happen for me was so incredible. It just, when you start doing that and you start seeing them have that agency, that their words matter, that their thoughts are important, that they need to start being responsible for the messages they're sending and how they're expressing things. It, it's, I never say you need to not use certain language or you need to be, you know, nice to your grandmother in your play or whatever. The whole thing is (laughs) you need to be true to your art. And if you're not being true to and honest, then, then you're doing it wrong. You've got to be honest. And that's sort of the main rule. Did you, and that's what translates. Yeah. Did your kids get a chance to go to rehearsals and tech and stuff at the Kennedy Center so they could actually see some of the process and answer questions themselves being the playwright? Emily went to a lot of meetings with the director and the designers, but she didn't actually go to, I think she maybe went to one rehearsal. Will, on the other hand, they changed the program enough in the two years in between that he was very much involved in, you know, seeing what goes on backstage. And at that time for both of them, they had had enough training with this amazing director, um, Amber at uh, Amber Harrington at their school in Tulsa, that they kind of knew. And the thing that was amazing to both of them was, wow, this is what we do at our school. They're, of course, doing it at a higher level. Um, you know, there's that level of professionalism that you can't compare. But they're doing the same kinds of things. Yeah, but flats are flats and lights are lights and costumes are costumes. That doesn't change. Right. And I I think, too, the idea that you have to work within the scaffolding that's already there. Like, you you see a lot of plays in competitions, uh, because I read for some competitions, um, where kids are writing plays based on their movie and television viewing. So you Mm -hmm. go, like, a scene for six seconds, and then the next scene, there's an explosion. And, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. Let's back it up a little. Yeah. But you can tell you when, had to do when this. Some, yeah, yeah, exactly. You can tell when a, someone understands the scaffolding of the work, uh, of you know how to tell a story in this medium, and it's it changes how you how you think and tell a story, and you have to do some code switching, and you know there's all kinds of things that go on when you have to make those shifts that are higher order thinking. Um, whether you're a technician or a playwright or a director or a performer. I think especially for technicians, because they're the ones having to figure it out. You know, playwrights are notorious <laughs> for writing. And here this explosion happens and suddenly the witch appears and, you know, she's all, it, she's totally green and whatever, you know, it's like, that's going to happen magically. <laughs> yeah. It does happen magically. We make magic happen on stage. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's just like the stuff that people write and they think, no problem, we'll do that. Uh, It's fine if it's in your imagination, but now you're handing off to someone who has to make this happen in a real world setting. Mm -hmm. Ah! Yeah. (laughs) They're reading a vintage newspaper from 1930 in a subdivision of France. Well, great. Where am I going to find that? (laughs) And they talk about it, so it's not like I can just give you any newspaper. 
But now I gotta figure out how to find a newspaper with no budget or make a newspaper, and that's always difficult. Yeah, exactly. And to the playwright, it was just words on a page, but to the rest of us, it was hours of work and research and labor. Yeah. We actually did a new a new piece in my college. I think it was my last year in college. And it was a local playwright. And our uh, head of our department really liked her. And so we got the rights to do her piece. I think it might have been like the first or second time it had ever been done. And it was similar to that in that there were so many scene changes and it would switch. It was supposed to be in a dressing room at backstage of a theater. And it was cast with the same performers, but it was like 20 years apart from each other. But it would switch back and forth all the time. It was a really cool piece. But creating that, we ended up creating two turntables on our stage. And then all of the set had to be exactly the same, but like 20 years apart from each other. So we had to try to find, you know, a a makeup kit that looked similar to each other. And it was a very difficult show to do, but it was a very beautiful piece. And we didn't get to work with her through the process, but I believe she came to one of our performances, opening night or, or one of the following ones. And we got to sit down and talk to her about it. And our scenic designer, um, actually asked her, you know, when, when you wrote this, did you think about this? Did you think about how it was going to be produced and what it would mean? It was a very specific prop that he asked about, and I can't remember what it was, but something like the makeup kit, because she was very specific about what it looked like. He was like, did you have a specific makeup kit in mind, or did you just think about it? And she honestly said, I never actually thought about it being produced or how it would be to get. I just imagined it in my head. But because it was so specific in the script and the way that this performers talked about it, you know, it, we couldn't find that in the real world. And she was like, oh, yeah, I never actually thought about somebody having to find that or the fact that these scene changes had to happen in like two seconds. How do you do that? Yeah. And I really wish that I could remember that person's name and go back and talk to her now and ask her, you know, have you changed your writing style or, you know, did that affect you? going forward in your career on how you're going to write pieces as opposed, you know. Oh, you know, it, it had to have, if she wants to be produced, you know. Ex- exactly. If you're going to be produced, you have to make it producible. <laughs> have you? I mean, it does make you wonder what was Andrew Lloyd Webber thinking when he says, you know, helicopter lands on stage. Right. <laughs> what? right. How many people can actually do that? Very few theaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spacing, money, pro- people. Yeah. It's oh, it super cool when it happens, but... Well, sure. But then every community theater has their cardboard helicopter coming down. So not quite the same. Yeah, very true. <laughs> oh, so, my gosh. But yeah, I, I totally get that. Did you notice in your kids or kids that you've worked with, their, their writing style changed once they see it produced? Or because you said they already kind of had a background in backstage work, that they kind of had that in mind when they were writing it? Well, it's interesting when you talk about my own kids, uh, my personal children, um, <laughs> who are all adults, that there was that kind of, they were backstage babies. So I think they had a sense from the get-go that they couldn't quite do everything. And they would make fun of their friends for writing scripts that were read like movies as opposed to, you know, cut to this scene. Right. Um, because know. they got it. Right. Yeah. But they also, and they heard me, I'm sure they heard me bitch about it enough to say <laughs> True, true, true. <laughs> um, but I do see them actually playing with the form more. Now it's less about being convenient 
for the people producing the show and more about what can I do with this particular framework that would be really creative and interesting. And so now they're working, moving into this other world of being really, um, they both do very realistic work, but they also both do really um, kind of, um, I don't want to say truly experimental, but on the verge of stuff that, that stays within the parameters of being producible while playing with the whole concept. Like Will has a show that uh, I hope he gets to back to work on. That's all about putting on a show. And the whole time he's toying with the audience, like saying, now this thing that I'm speaking to you now, this is a line that was written. See, it's right there in the script. And he's oh, talking awesome. to him. Right. Yeah. And so it's that playing with the idea that what they're seeing is both in the moment. It's kind of meta. Like you're seeing something in the moment, but you're also seeing something that's been rehearsed over and over again. That has been in the process for a long time. Yeah. Right. And that to me is pretty fascinating because now they've moved past that point of just doing something producible and they're getting into that world of true creative creative work where you you are creating something specifically for that audience in that environment, in that venue. And that's exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah. I'm working on a show with uh, Andreas at Long Beach Opera, and it's kind of the same idea. We had, it's, it's an, how do you describe it? It's kind of a review of past shows that he's done because he's been the artistic director at Long Beach Opera for 20 years. So there's six singers, one piano player, and there was a basic script written and a list of songs that was come up with during rehearsal, but the whole idea of the show is that the audience showed up a day early, so we're technically still in rehearsal, so the actors are like, oh, we're, there's audience here, okay, well, I'm not ready, I have my bags and all, and, you know, there's some confusion there, and then like, oh, this reminds me of this song, then they stand and sing a song. But we still had two days of rehearsal and we're going to have hours of tech and there's going to be projections and lights and sound. So it's obvious we're not in a rehearsal. But because that's, that's the, the show. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that because then the audience does really feel like a fly on the wall. They're getting a sneak peek, but they're exactly. not. Yeah. So. They're like, oh, this is what happens. It's like, well, sometimes, but not really. Oh. Like, <laughs> Usually you don't have projections this well organized at this point. But exactly. <laughs> Do they ever stop and fix something during the actual show show? We don't have a yeah, script. We just have a list of songs and the actors are just going to ad lib and think we have like 75 minutes of music and he wants it to be about a 90 minute show. And so I have no script. I have a list of songs that I hope they somewhat follow because there's projections I'm supposed to be doing with them. And oh my god. Like, they're like, well, and then maybe you walk out on stage. I'm like, wait, am I calling the show running projections and walking out on stage? Like, where am I? My backstage? Am I in blacks? Am I not in blacks? If I think it's a rehearsal, would I be on headset? Like, how far are we going with this? And there's just uh, no, but you and- should. I'm gonna write. I'm gonna write Andres. You should at one point write up, walk out on stage with your headset on, and be like, no, 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 stop, stop. We have to go back to light cue 27 and then like have the light board operator go back if you, that would be awesome. That would I be need so- to write to Andres. Yeah. That's what happens in rehearsal. He and Susan would be so excited. I know they would be. I'm going to call Susan and tell her this. Yeah. There's also just the set dressing is a pile of props and costumes around the stage and music stands and chairs, but they're not all lined up and the piano is going to be there, but like not open. 
And so I have no idea how it's actually going to turn out because we haven't done it. <laughs> I'd be so interested to see how that turned to, to hear about how that turns out. So if you post something in USITT, that'd be great. Yeah, yes. I, I will. I, I would definitely be interested. <laughs> The funny thing is that that's just how this company runs. I worked there for six years, and that is how it is in rehearsals. So that's pretty exactly. much exactly <laughs> what doing what they always do. <laughs> exactly. That's why none of us are concerned about it, because this is just kind of how the company works. And you just kind it's of figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Like a perpetual IDR. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> it was like, okay, great. You Okay, yeah, we're, we're using... Uh, a ghost light in the middle of the show now and you want a light bulb added to it? Fine. Whatever. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll take care of it. No problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, actually, it sounds kind of like, kind of like a lot of fun. Yeah, it should but, be interesting. Unless it totally turns into a train wreck and then less fun. Yeah. But then you could you could play with that, though. If it does turn into a train wreck, like... If that's the concept of it, or, you know, you could add that into the concept of it because you are in rehearsal and that's kind of what happens in rehearsal. So, yeah, it's you know, the, like, right, the right audience would totally love that. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. If, if the stage manager walked out on stage and like made everything stop and go back three cues, it, yeah. nobody would know it was wrong because that's what is supposed to happen. Especially be like, so. you guys, we're supposed to be singing this song, your office song. That, that messes yeah, right. up. Netta, start over. We're going back to this song. Cue, start over. We're going back to this cue. Okay, start again. Yeah, that's kind of fun. Just treat it like rehearsal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> well, we have we have one more question, and I, I I honestly can't remember if we prepped you for this, but hopefully you have an answer. So because it's called, <laughs> oh, yeah. I've listened to your song. So. Okay, great. So because it's Twins Talk Theater, we always ask if you have a twin story. Uh, usually we say it doesn't have to be theater related, but I feel like you have to have something theater related that's a twin story. Have you worked with many twins or taught twins or? I haven't. I know that sounds crazy. I haven't worked with twins in theater, but, you know, a handful of very small instances. But I'll tell you an, an, a quick story about my my kids. Okay. Um, because my son and daughter think that they're twins just born sort of a little far apart. <laughs> three years apart so will was really slow in getting started I think. Uh, well you know okay. guys usually are a little bit slower yeah. that's what we usually say um <laughs> they're both redheads they look an awful lot alike and so you know people would mistake them for twins i'm sure um but they both were directing a show the same summer they were sharing a cast and uh, or some members of casts and they were supporting each other and doing the work and they each had a show going up one summer and I would be in on both of the shows because I was helping to produce them both. And I would go on one show and Emily would, her favorite note to someone was, um, I don't know what I want you to do there. Just be funny. And that was her. Note. And then <laughs> go over to the next show and Will's like, I don't know, be funny. <laughs> but that seals the deal. You're twins. You're, that's it. Yeah. You just. That's their favorite. <laughs> of them give that note to people whenever they can be funny <laughs> it'll, it'll be better and, if you just be funny yeah, it works because somebody knows how to be funny with their own body better than a director will know how to make them be funny oh yeah that's absolutely. true yeah so, that's my fabulous twin story <laughs> no, that's that's an awesome twin story twins <laughs> that are not twins but think they're twins 
Like, <laughs> well, they're related at least. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's better than some, so that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Allie. It was so exciting to talk to you about. I don't think we've we haven't talked to many educators, so it's so wonderful to to have you on our podcast. It was so much fun, and I'm so thrilled that both of you all are such creatives involved in this world because I think you will make a huge difference in theater as time goes by. I I look forward to seeing more of what you work on. Thank you so much. And I hope you continue doing what you're doing. And we're going to have to look up your kids now because maybe we should get them on our podcast next. And Emily Adams and Will Inman. So, you know, I don't know how to, how, how to find Will. He's so bad about getting back to you, but they're both. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Because we don't have any playwrights on, so we will have to remedy that. We'll get some playwrights on and talk to them about their process. Get a pair yeah. of pseudo-twins. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Multiple reasons. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, hopefully we'll catch up again soon, and maybe in a year or so get you back on and see how things have progressed. Thank you so right. much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstalktheater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.